All right. So, uh, like Pete said, we're going to be in Psalm 73 today. So, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and pull them out. If you don't, the white Bibles underneath the, the chairs there, or you can go ahead and grab one of those. It's on page 278, and, and we're going to crank through Psalm 73. So, most of you guys know that all summer we've been in the book of Psalms, and, and it's been a really cool series, right? It's been a lot of fun to crank through the Psalms. I think sometimes we don't it's when we look at the Old Testament, a lot of us generally spend a lot of time in the New Testament, but we forget how awesome the Psalms are. And so this one, this Psalm 73, it's a little bit different than, than some of the other ones that we've been talking about, mostly because of the author. So generally speaking, when we, when we think about the Psalms, we think about David, right? There's always that connection. This Psalm, however, was written by Asaph. So in First Chronicles, we learn that David had appointed a group of Levites to... Uh, to be in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord. So basically, what that means is Asaph was a worship leader, right? That's what he did, a modern equivalent uh, to a worship leader. So we're going we're gonna to split the text into two, two pieces today. So we're going to read the first half first, and then we'll, and we'll get going through it. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are in trouble as, not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And he says, how can God know? Is there a knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I learned to discern their end. All right. So, before we get started, I'll apologize because I know that your necks are a little bit sore from looking up because I'm like a foot taller than Josh and Benger. So, um, but bear with me. And, and, you know, next week Josh will be back and taking a lot of ibuprofen, right? So uh, this psalm is, is, really, is really an awesome psalm, I think. I think as I've gone through it, it, it really appealed to me because it's something that, I, that I've struggled with in, throughout my life. And it's not something that necessarily I planned that way. Um, Asaph identifies a huge theological question that, that I think all of us have, have encountered, meaning I've asked it myself or, or it's been asked to me. Asaph is looking at the world around him, and he looks up to God, and he says, God, I know you're good. Right? You've been good to Israel. But i got to be honest with you, that looks a whole lot easier to me. That lifestyle looks a whole lot easier to me. And I'm considering going down that path. It's, it looks like it's not any different. So have you ever kind of thought that, right? Have you ever been tempted to, to just kind of live like everybody else? 
I know for me, it was always, well, if they can do that, I can do that. That was the, that was the saying I always used to, I, I used to struggle with in college all the time uh, because a lot of my friends believed it's something different and I think, well, if they can do that, I can do it, right? And it's a horrible, flawed line of thinking. You see, I think that when we're talking about the anatomy of the soul, right, that's the series we've been in all summer, is the anatomy of the soul. When we talk about the anatomy of the soul, we have a tendency to look at the world around us and we start to give in to this lie that, that it would be easier to be like the rest of the world. Our souls are fooled into thinking that there are no consequences for our actions. And for most of us, like right, right when we talk about the Bible or we're talking about it with our friends, we know that there are consequences for our actions. But we kind of feel like we don't always see that, right? And I think... To, to, to kind of share a Charles, or one of Josh's favorite theologians, right, is Charles Spurgeon. Seems like he's always up here quoting him. I'm going to share a quote from him. He says, he says, it is a pitiful thing that an heir of heaven should have to confess, I was envious, but worse still, that he should have to put it, I was envious of the foolish. And I think that's exactly what we're guilty of, right? Asaph is looking at the world and he's going, God, you're good. And, and, you, and you pro, your promises say you're going to bless the good. But on the other hand, these people are all wicked, and they all seem to have it pretty good too, right? That's what he explores in verse 4. In verse 4, he outlines the ways in which the wicked prosper. He says that they're envious. He says they have no pangs until death, meaning that until they die, it looks like life is pretty easy, right? He, he, uh, their bodies are fat and sleek, so they're not having to worry about you know, whether or not their daily needs are being met. They have everything that they need in front of them while, while we might be struggling, right? They don't even seem to get in trouble when everyone else would get into trouble. Right? We, I think we've all been in that situation where we've looked at someone and thought, how did they get away with that, right? How did Martha Stewart get house arrest for insider trading when everybody else, it seems like you're going to go serve prison time, right? Why is that? It's hard not to look at that. But, but we, and when we talk about this idea, I think a lot of times, naturally, the tendency is to lean into celebrities and think of, like, that, that's the worldly thing. That's, oh, celebrities are liberal in California and bleh, right? But I think we all know somebody like that in our daily lives, too, right? Like, we probably know some guy who, he always is kind of hinting at his success, like he's always dropping little hints at his success, or, like, talks about how cool his vacations are, he thinks his car's super-duper awesome, you know, he's probably a salesman or an insurance broker, right? That guy bugs the crap out of all of us, right? But the one that's a little bit more challenging, I think, to, to struggle with and to handle is the dictator who's slaughtering thousands of people for no reason, right? Other than they won't subscribe to what, what he wants them to believe or to, he won't, they won't kneel before him. In many cases, it's just strictly to create fear. That's a hard thing for us to deal with. Why would a good and loving God allow someone like that to be in power, right? That's, some, that's a hard question to ask. That's a hard question for me to understand. And my pages are out of order here. I'm really sorry. So I think that the... One second. <clears throat> I 
I found it, I found it, I found it, I found it. Sorry, guys. This is what happens when you get the intern on stage, right? All right. So, so in verse 6, right, that's where we're at. When verse 6, he goes on to say, therefore. Therefore, they are prideful, they're violent, they're malicious, they're oppressive. And I think we can all kind of imagine the person he's talking about. We as individuals look around and say, these people seem to have it good, right? And consequently, because they have it good, they just get worse, right? The richer just get richer. The, the, the more prideful they are and the, and the easier their lives are, the more prideful they become. We're out here limiting ourselves, and in spe specifically, Asaph is pointing that out because he's a Levite, right? So the Levites were really strict, adhered very well or very, to a very strict set of laws, right? So he's looking at the world and saying, man, I, I do all of these things the right way, and they have, they have it easier than I do. And how do we respond to that? If we look in verse 9, he says, his people turn back to them and find no fault. This is really the, the true essence of the lie. Our souls begin to accept wickedness, right? That is the lie. Wickedness is okay. We start to turn a blind eye to evil. It's almost like we become numb to it. Because we see the world and we think, well, if their life is easy, it can't, it, it can't be all that bad, right? We kind of just let it go by the wayside. When I was in college, my coach, he... Uh, he had this saying, he said, you got to be living right. And part of it was because he was coaching a bunch of 19 and 20-year-old kids whose, whose idea of fun, right, when you're in college is chasing girls and drinking a lot of beer, right? So as a coach whose livelihood is dependent on a bunch of idiots, you can see why that's a problem, right? So you would say you got to be living right. But the way that he phrased it was that we would have blessings if we... Like, like, we would be more blessed if we lived right on the baseball field. Like, the consequence of, if we, if we, were, if we weren't doing the right things off the field, we weren't going to play well. So we'd have the saying, every time, you know, somebody's hit a home run, oh, he must be living right. I'd give up a 400-foot home run, they'd be like, Jake's not living right, right? But my junior year, that all changed. We had this guy transfer in from the University of Miami, and he was so much better than everyone else on our team. He, he was what we, in baseball, call a five-tool player. So a five-tool player has a big arm, threw the ball a mile, he could run fast, he had a high batting average, he hit for power, and defensively, he caught everything that he could see. He was so good. And he was so wild. He was promiscuous, he was partying, and so over the course of time, our standard for what was living right just kind of went by the wayside, because if he could get away with it, we think, well, why can't I? Right? He clearly, living right isn't doing anything for him. Right? He's still crushing it on the baseball field, so obviously the correlation is gone, right? And I think that's what Asaph is saying here. We start to get to this point where we look at the world around us, and because, the, because these people have it so well, we just kind of forget about them or just assume that they're okay. Right? And I think what that leads to is we sort of start to question God, right? We start to start to, sort of start to question the plan and almost translates to, we think God owes us something, right? Like, we're doing all these things the right way. Like, God, I'm doing everything like I'm supposed to be doing. And, and for what? For not, right? We start to look at it and say, hey God, 
I'm doing what you told me to do. Give me this. Or, look how good I am. I'm doing so awesome. Why would you let something bad happen to me when that wicked person over there clearly is more deserving? Right? Has anybody thought like that? Just me? Just me. Cool. All right. So I, I tend to think that way. So let me share an example of that, though, because this one's pretty near and dear to my heart. So I, had the, I have this friend who, he was, he was pretty instrumental into developing who I became as a man. You know, he, he uh, and by all accounts, he, did, he and his family did everything the right way, right? They led the youth group. They, they, they were in charge of a Sunday school class. They were at church every Sunday. They were at every church event, and the list goes on and on and on, right? Check, 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 check. But about five years ago, his wife's mom, his mother-in-law, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's which we all know is debilitating, right? It's, it's a horrible disease. But not only was she diagnosed with it, she deteriorated so rapidly, quicker than most, than, than most people do when, they, when they're diagnosed. Within three years, she couldn't remember her children anymore. Okay? And she's young. She's not very old. And so his wife looked around the world and thought, why would that happen to my mom? By all accounts, she, she did everything that she was supposed to do, and now she can't remember who her kids are. Why would a loving God do something like that? Okay? And she, could not, she couldn't come to grips with it. And consequently, she is, she's given, up, given it all up and said, I don't, I don't believe that there could be a God that loves everybody if, if he's willing to let that happen to someone who does things right when he's letting people be in power and murder, slaughter people by the millions. I mean, that is literally her line of thinking. And I think that on the scale... Right? We have a tendency to look at that, and, and that's, a pretty, that's a pretty dramatic example, right? But, but we all have it in our daily lives. For me, at work, I do everything by the letter of the law. Right? I, I, I do everything I'm supposed to do, and I compete with people who I know are cutting corners. I 100% know they're, they're cutting corners. And you know what? They're a lot more successful than I am. Right? That doesn't feel right. Like, I do everything I'm supposed to do. This person doesn't. And they're way, they're, they, they are way better off for it right now. Right? That doesn't feel good. And so Asaph starts to question that. And, and in verse 16, he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task. Right? He's asking, when he's asking himself, how do I grasp this? How do I grapple with that? What he realizes is he can't. Right? It's too painful for him to look at the world around him and see those people the way that they are under his current sinful state and understand why the world works that way. But he throws in the word until, and then something changes, right? Something is different for him than, than being able to grasp it by himself, and that's when he enters into the sanctuary, right? In 17, when he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God... Then I discerned their end, right? He realizes that those people who are cutting corners, who have it all now, won't have anything in eternity, right? In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What Asaph is saying is he realized that those people who have it all now will face an eternity of punishment 
if they don't change their ways. I think that's a hard thing to talk about. I think it's something that we don't, as a church, always stand up here and talk about. We talk a lot about Christ's love, but we don't always talk about what it means not to know Jesus because people don't like to hear it. We don't want to offend people. But the fact of the matter is, is that those who do not choose the Lord have something devastating waiting for them. So for, for those who follow Jesus, right, for, for us, it's different. The knowledge of Jesus' sacrifice and understanding the gospel and knowing that we are saved from eternal punishment, we've been redeemed, that provides us with hope and joy now, in the present today, right? There's, there's hope in knowing that we don't have to suffer through that consequence. That's what he realizes when he says, when he goes on through the rest of the verse, or chapter, excuse me. He says, truly, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms when my soul was embittered. When I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven? And there is nothing but, excuse me, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your good works. So what he's saying is, He's looking, at the, he's looking at the world around him and he's saying, everyone has to stand before the Lord in judgment at some point. For those who know Christ, right? For a follower of Jesus, that's not something to fear. That's going to be a moment of, of great joy, right? But for those who don't, those who, who do not know that and have to face that eternal punishment, that should be a frightening thing. And the psalmist realizes that when he says, at the, earlier in the text, you notice he says, I had almost slipped. I had almost stumbled. Nearly steps, my steps had nearly slipped. Right? So now he's looking at it and he's saying, Lord, I know I was looking over the edge of those people and I was thinking, you know what? Uh, that actually does look pretty good down there. But now I realize that you were holding my hand and, I, and in fact, they're currently slipping. Right? In Second Peter it says, And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. So now, in Christ, we are exempt from those pangs, right? The, the, the eternal pangs that they, will, that they face. And that gives us joy and peace now, right? That gives us hope now. That's a, I don't know about you guys, but, but that's, that's the best part about the gospel is you know, we talk a lot about eternity and what's going to look like, and, and, it's, and it's true. But that peace now, the peace that your soul finds now as a result of that promise, 
is what drive is our is my motivating factor is what our motivating factor is they are destroyed and swept away you guide me with counsel and receive me to glory proverbs 3 5 says trust in the lord with you probably all know this one right trust in the lord god with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding when they are swept away meaning at the end of their lives when they face more mortality there's going to be a consequence, and they're going, to be, they're going to be swept away. But we have someone who's guiding us through the, through the river, right? I, I, when I hear the swept away, that's, that's the first thing I think about. When you go out on a, you know, like a hiking exploration, you go out on your own, and you hear about accidents that happen and people getting caught in a, in a current and, and drowning, right? That's a, that's a scary thought. But when you go with someone that knows the way, someone that can guide you and help you through those places, you have a much higher likelihood of success, and, it's a, and you feel a lot safer, right? And not only is that person leading you there, but he's the person waiting for you in glory, to receive you to glory, which is such a cool thought, I think. The next piece he says is that the Lord despises them as phantoms, but there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. So it's kind of interesting about phantom, because that, I'll be honest, that statement kind of confused me a little bit. He despises them as phantoms, because my immediate thought was... Well, I thought of Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, but, or ghosts, right? Something like that. Um, which, by the way, The Phantom Menace is the worst movie to have ever existed. And I love Star Wars, but Judas. Anyway, I digress. Um, so what he says is, he, he, what, that, what that word is, what that, the word that phantoms means is actually their form, right? That literally translates from the word, in the Hebrew word, to their form. So what he's saying is, I hate their actions, I hate, he hates the things that separate us from him, right? And so when we look at the people who are wicked, we see that there are a lot of things that come between us and the Lord, which is why he went later in the text when he points out, there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. That statement is, is so powerful and so hard to live with, right? How many of us can look in the mirror every day and be like, there is nothing or no one on earth besides the Lord that I desire. I know I can't. I, I, that's one of the hardest things for me, is that I know that there's always something that gets in the way. And, if, and I think for most of us, right, that's probably the case. There's always something, there's always, whether, it's, whether it's riches or a person, it could be anything, right? There's always something that gets in the way. But with that being said, as we grow and as we mature in our, in our relationship with Jesus, we start to see that those things become less and less important, right? We start to learn and understand that all of the possessions and all of the things of this world that we think we're envious of now won't matter in, when, we're, when we're facing eternity, right? Right? We look at the guy who has the Ferrari, and right now we're envious of him, but what does that matter? That, that, that thing's going to break down in two years anyway. That's how they get you to buy another one, right? You never see a 1970s Ferrari actually on the road. It's sitting in somebody's garage, right? The, 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 the purses and the big house and all of that stuff. I mean, think about how frequently we have to buy a new home. I have to repaint my house every two years. I can't stand it. Those things don't matter. They're not in, in eternity. They're nothing. And so the gospel starts to transform us, right? Christ starts to move us, moving us in a way that 
that we draw closer and closer to him. Right? And now we're not envious of the people who have all of that stuff because we understand where our hope is. What happens is now we start to see their need for Jesus. Right? He goes on to say, it is good for me to be near God. It is good for our souls to be near Jesus. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Jesus is our refuge, that I might tell of your works. Christ's gift is so good, right? The Lord's goodness to Asaph here literally drives him to speak of the good works of the Lord, to want to tell people about how good God is. And I think that sometimes what happens as, we, as we're exposed to this lie, right? There's kind of two trains of thoughts, two things that kind of happen simultaneous. One, we get into this position where we start to think, he's going to get what's coming to him, right? That person is going to get what's coming to him. And, and I would bet that everybody in this room has said that at some point, right? Or implied it, or I'm pretty sure everybody has said it. I know I've said it at least a few times, Right? Or the other option is that we look at it and we just let it go by the wayside, right? We've turned their back and become numb to them. So that means our neighbors and our family members and our, these people that we love dearly that don't know Jesus, because their lives seem to be going okay, we just kind of let it be. And that actually might be more scary when you think about it, Right? We should be so driven by what Christ has done for us that we want to share that with those people. We want to encourage them to know the Lord. But on the same token, those people that we, that we despise and we think that they're going to get what's coming to them, they need Jesus just as much as anybody else, right? And when we look at those two thoughts and we kind of think about that line, train of, that, that line of thinking, I think what we realize is we're not that different from the wicked, Right? In the end, both of those trains of thought, the fact that we let them sit fat and happy and don't want to share the gospel with them, or we, for lack of a better way of saying it, hope that they're going to get what's coming to them, that makes us no different than them. Right? We should want to share the good work with them. And so, I think what I took out of this the most is... is what, how does Christ moving in us look in our church, in our congregation, right? What does it look like for us? How do we move forward from this? I think that as a, as, as a body, as a congregation, we should want to share the good news with all of those around us, right? It is such an awesome story to tell. And for most of the people around us in Davis County, they don't know the truth. They don't understand the gospel, and, and I think we have a tendency sometimes to say, well, they're going to get what's coming to them. But that isn't what Jesus says. That isn't what Jesus wants for them. Jesus wants each and every single one of us to know him personally and individually. The gospel is for every single person. It's not just for the people who we think it's for, right? It's not just for the the, the, the poor, the people who need it just as much are, are the wealthy. And I think sometimes we forget about that because they have everything good right now. So as a church, 
we have an opportunity. We have an amazing opportunity before us in this, in this area to go out and to share with the loved ones the, the, the truth and love of Jesus Christ and what he did for each and every single one of us. Right? We have an opportunity to show them what Jesus did, to be that light shining on the hill. And I think that that's what our church's name really signifies, right? We are Flourishing Grace Church. We want to see grace flourish in our community. We want everyone to know the Lord. So let's be those people. Let's go out into the community every day. Let's not look at somebody's life and think, oh, they have it good. I don't want to offend them. I'm just going to let it be. We want to see everybody in heaven, right? We want, we want everyone to receive Christ's glory. And we have an opportunity, right? Let's go out this week and let's share the gospel. Let's be proud of what he's done for us. Let, it, let him drive us to share the good news. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, we know that it's not about us. It's all about you. Without you, Lord, the world seems broken and painful and miserable. The wicked prosper. It's a, it's a broken world apart from you. But through you, Jesus, we know and we understand that we have hope for today because of our future. When we've been standing, worshiping, singing your praises for 10,000 years, this will all look like a blip on the radar. So give us the strength, Lord, to go into our communities, to go out into the world, to share your gospel. Lord, give us the confidence to speak proudly about who you are and what you've done and to show our neighbors the difference you have made, God. We love you. We praise you. Amen.